Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 24th episode of the Truth Island podcast. Logic and emotion are typically regarded as being in perpetual war with one another. We on one hand probably know someone who is able to keep their emotions fully in check and act like a chess master at all times. Conversely, we also know someone who has submitted to the emotional chaos that often engulfs this world. The man, for example, trying to return something at the checkout counter, years after purchasing an item with no receipt in hand, who believes that in his fury and anger alone, he will be able to change the circumstances in his favor. Our emotions, however, are not all bad. They allow us to rise to the occasion and become angry, sad, or joyful when the occasion merits. After all, who in their right mind would want to attend a birthday party with a group of people trying to quietly solve crossword puzzles in Sudoku. Perhaps a more appropriate description for this balance would be the term emotional intelligence. It is often said the emotionally intelligent person knows how to laugh best at a party, fight passionately for what's important to them, and know how to display remorse when they have done something wrong. But perhaps in order to improve our emotional intelligence, a bit of logic is required. Joining me now is Sam. Sam, can you tell us what observations you've made when working with children and how best to regulate emotions? Well, I've noticed that uh, children and um, everyone um, who was a child once uh, is operating, has internalized a particular mode of operation um, when it comes to uh, our feelings, our emotions, um, an operating system, and part of growing, growing up. And even from a, ch a child to middle school, from middle school to high school, high school to college, and college to young adulthood and beyond, is beginning to recognize uh, our origin story. And a big part of our origin story is knowing uh, more and more um, how we were sort of inducted into this world emotionally. Um, you know, a couple common ways of thinking about our feelings. I grew up in a pretty uh, strict, very religious uh, Presbyterian home out in the prairie wilderness of small town, rural Iowa. And there's a lot of hearty kind of Germanic folk out there. And the approach to emotions uh, growing up for me was very much, um, you know, my dad was a coach, actually a uh, soccer coach. And his, his mantra out in the field was take a licking and keep on ticking. Um, and that was very much how we handled our feelings. Uh, if you were hurt or sad or um, afraid or angry, you just had to move on. You had to sort of just toughen up. And um, do you think that, uh, you know, your father in this, is he, do you think that's to protect you in some way? Like, do you think like there's this idea sometimes that the harder we become as a shell, the more we'll be able to survive with, with what life throws at us? Do you think that was kind of what was behind your father's reasoning at the time? I think totally. I think it is totally a protective measure, especially when it comes to the, the emotion of sadness, because sadness is not the, the world's expert on this issue, but I think sadness is the most uh, kind of misunderstood and also sort of painful feeling to feel. And so almost as a protective measure against what sadness could feel like or kind of grappling with loss or suffering, um, it steers us into uh, sort of a callousness or a stoicism when it comes to, to, to feeling. So yeah, it is protective. Um, I, I think it was born out of necessity too. You know, um, I think about my ancestors out on the plains of Iowa coming over in the 1800s and, and into the you know early 20th century as immigrants from Europe. And they had to farm the land and drain the swamps and um, whatever else had to clear the trees, whatever else had to be done out there, uh, survive the winters. And there wasn't the luxury, I guess, historically to, um, even into my, my dad's generation, to really uh, to think about what was happening inside uh, and inside our hearts and our minds and our, our, our feelings. I, I think back to a conversation that I had with Claire about the World War I and the World War II generation. Yeah. And 
it's this idea that they, they were fighting fascism and they were fighting evil and threats that are, are beyond our wildest imaginations today. And I, I think it was perhaps a luxury to, to be like um, too involved in your emotions at that time. Like there was so much asked of you and there was so much that you had yes. to perform at that time because the stakes were so high that I, I think there's this construction that uh, being too, too involved in our emotions is a form of selfishness and not really being a part of the collective. Yeah, totally. And as a result, you know, my sort of the, the MO that I internalized even into adulthood, especially I remember kind of a, a turning point for me around middle school, high school, I was called on to be a really good kid. I my my parents were running this school for troubled kids and you know, I had to sort of be an example and sort of different. And, and so kind of that combined with just my all of my upbringing, I, I developed kind of an internal coping mechanism uh, that I inherited from my parents and from then them from their parents to dismiss and disapprove of any kind of negative feelings. You know, there wasn't a lot of room or space to be uh, unhappy or to even dislike something, you know, it wasn't really up for debate. You just had to uh, accept and put up with things and um, to do anything else was uh, a shirking of duty and sort of familial responsibility. And so I grew up with a, kind of an estranged relationship to my feelings. No, it's, it's very interesting that you mentioned the, the middle school thing, because yeah. I think that parents and society at large are very tolerant of the third grader that throws a, ten, you know, that throws a tantrum. Yeah. Like, we, we, we yes. can accept that. But I think everything comes to an end once you hit like seventh grade. And yeah. it's not only your parents that are going to be a lot harder on you. It's also your yeah. peers. Like if you start yeah. crying or, or like are very emotional at that age, especially when you're hitting adolescence, you will, you will be ostracized from everyone around you. You'll be considered the weak boy or the weak kid. And yeah. some, some might argue that that's a rite of passage. Like in order yeah. to survive in this world, you do need to a, develop a, a harder shell. But I'm wondering, you know, what's the balance with that? Yeah, I think the balance there is that uh, caregivers, whether that's teachers or a guidance counselor or a pastor or a spiritual leader, or, but especially parents, have to take a, a really proactive, I don't think micromanaging is good. I, I, I really, by the way, really look down on, not look down, but uh, I'm very, um, uh, very wary of parents who check their children's texts or, you know, have kind of an, an invasive, an invasive relationship with their children. But I think you can have like an intentional and a constructive uh, relationship to your, your children or your, you know, the, the, the young people who are in your charge to help them cultivate um, emotional intelligence through kind of a process of coaching and nurturing and drawing them out. Um, and, and that, that never, that the need for that, the urgency for that never dissipates throughout our lives. We need people around us to be asking us good questions and we need people around us to be listening well. And we, we in turn have to do that for others. Um, it's, uh, it's that kind of process. We're poured into and we pour into others. And I think that's how young people make the transition from from elementary school to middle school, from middle school to high school, from high school to college, and then into young adulthood is that they have that modeled for them. Um, and then they actually have that done for them. And, and, then, and then they're ready to do that for others. But you never stop having it done for you and doing it for others. And I think that's how you make the transition. I mean, some, I guess there are some kind of, you could call them child prodigies or something like that, just special <laughs> cases where it's like, they can just do it on their own. And, but I don't think that's really how it works. Generally, you've got to have, uh, you've got to have coaches along the way. Well, one other thing that I, I always get lost in debate here is let's say you have a child and they're having some great difficulty. Do you think like, like maybe a hybrid compromise here is that the father or the mother listens to that problem and says, Hey, it's okay for you to confide in me and, and be this expressive, yeah. 
but when you go back to school, you're going to have to kind of toughen up a little bit because I, 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 I do see both sides of the coin that if you're too expressive with strangers or you're too expressive in the public arena, you will, you will become a target and you will, people will take advantage of you and people will yeah. try and exploit you. So I'm wondering, you know, how, how we set up these mechanisms in our world where you can get, there are places for uh, emotional expression, but at the same time, you're also learning the toughening up skills that are going to help you survive in this world. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, uh, you know, another prevailing mode of operation, I keep using that phrase, but for parenting is to let to let children feel whatever they want to feel all the time and mm. for them and for you as a parent to give to allow them to have full expression to give full vent to what they feel and i think that's not helpful either that's kind of the pendulum has swung to the other side there and i think there's a spectrum i think that we all grow up on a spectrum of uh kind of emotional um, operating systems, right? And um, but the goal, I think, for parents is to model and then instruct uh, young people how to do that in in a in a kind of a safe way. Um, so yeah, I think you have to establish some safe places where you can really just be honest. I mean, everybody at every stage of life kind of needs like a, a safety valve like that, you know, a place where you know, the community is confidential, you're not going to feel shame, you're going to feel uh, vulnerability from other people. So I think parents can actually express some vulnerability with their parent with their children that is actually really helpful. Um, and not oh, doesn't cross a line. Now, I, I do want to touch upon something that you just mentioned about the pendulum uh, swinging yeah. too far in the other direction. And I actually yeah. think that it has, I, I think we have kind of cross um, a, a dangerous line and, and yeah. perhaps perhaps it, it's coming from a good place. Like I think the, the intentions are noble, but from what I'm seeing, I, I live in New York City yeah. and I am seeing some very, very, very disrespectful children in, in some regards and like they're overly expressive in, in like their disdain for something. Like I really yeah. don't want, I don't really want to go to grandma's house today. And, and it's like, right. I, I, I hear that. And yeah. I, I, I think like, okay, it's nice that you have parents that are allowing you or, or teaching you to be this vocal. But I think at the same time, there has to be a gentle hand of, I've, you know, you, your feelings are valid, but yeah. at the same time, you need to, to, to take a more nuanced thought or a nuanced action in the way that you're dealing with your disdain for this unpleasurable activity right now. Totally. I think that children need to be raised in community. I mean, in a, with a sense of like the village aspect of our lives. Um, and so you want to draw children out and to encourage them to, um, and this is kind of one of my rules of emotional intelligence is to understand and identify your own emotions. You want to give children tools for that and words for that, like naming what they feel. I think that's extremely important. I mean, that goes back to the Garden of Eden, you know, with Adam himself naming the animals as a, um, that's sort of something that God entrusted to him, you know, this responsibility and this calling, but also it's part of humanity and being human, especially when it comes to our feelings, we've got to be able to name what's happening and, and identify it. But you, you can do that and then also raise children, rear children with a sense of um, their responsibility and urgent, uh, kind of the urgency of of our lives um, before others um, to, to, to cultivate a sense of respectfulness for mm. people and manners. Um, these things can really, really coexist. It, is it hard? Yeah, I think it is hard. I think it's kind of a tenuous balance to help child, to help draw children out emotionally, but then also to instill in them a kind of a village sense, you know, Hey, you're part of a bigger community and you need to know your rights and responsibilities there. Let me ask you this question. 
suppose you have a child, right? And they want to really spend the day playing with their friends. Uh, but yeah. the parents say, you know what, we're going to grandma's house. And the child internally says, I don't want to go to grandma's house. She doesn't have internet there. She doesn't have <laughs> like the, the fun things that I want to play with. And yeah. th they sort of get themselves under control. Uh, but internally, they don't like being at grandma's house. And that's their internal thought. Now, because you have a religious background, I want to ask you, is it like, is it up to the individual to force themselves to change what they're feeling internally? Like should internally, should that boy be like, let me try my best to love grandma's house. Let me try my best to, to, to like embrace this new environment. Or is it okay to be like, I don't like grandma's house. It's boring, but I'm going to keep that in check, but I'm going to be honest with myself and, and, and say to myself, I don't like grandma's house. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. I, I think that you've got to be real uh, with yourself and others. Um, you know, honesty is the best policy, but you can do that in a way that's not um, disrespectful or alienating to other people. Um, I do think that if you lie to yourself and say, yeah, I, I really don't feel like lying to yourself and saying, yeah, I really do want to go to grandma's house when you don't, right? Um, I think that that creates uh, alienation within and within yourself, which is, just as damaging. I think parents can help kids get a better grip, better sense of their needs and desires. And, and, and that's something that will stick with you your whole life is being able to express um, what you need in a, in a given situation. Hey, I need this and I'm, I'm, I know how to say it and I have the boldness to say it um, and I want this. And, and you, but you, so learning those, having those things having those, uh, the ability to do those things, to express needs and desires is extremely important for emotional intelligence. But you can do that in a way that is um, respectful. And that, yeah, there is a sense of, there's always going to be a kind of a sense of duty, a call of, a call of duty. Hey, I know you don't want to go to grandma's house, but you really need to do that. And I think that parents can, can do that in a way that's not uh, stifling, emotionally stifling for a child. Um, but still reminds them that they have a call to, you know, from a religious perspective, love their neighbor as themselves, you know, kind of thing. And it's that village aspect that you are in community. You're not individual. I mean, you are individual, but you're also part of a corporate body and you need to, uh, to honor that. So I think the two can coexist. I like what you said about alienating yourself. I think that's really, that's a very beautiful insight because Thank you. I, I think that we, we, we can't succumb to the idea that we have to lie to ourselves. And I, I think no, a, lot no. of, a lot of people equate goodness with becoming like this Christ-like figure that lies to them, you know, like, like, and then we as humans cannot really achieve that. Like we cannot, mm -hmm. we can, if we internally feel like someone cheated us, if we internally feel that uh, we don't like the presence of being in this place or with this person, we, we can't, we can't um, aspire to, to reach this level of like, nothing bothers me anymore. I embrace everyone, you know, like, I think that's right. a very dangerous idea that we have that we, we internally have to grow to this level where nothing bothers us. Totally. I totally agree with that. And, you know, it reminds me of the feedback I give people, especially when I was in the ministry as a pastor, you know, if you have an issue with the way that something's happening at the church or uh, you have feedback for a sermon or for a service or, or anything like that. Um, you know, you can, you can be honest with me. You can tell me the truth and what you're feeling that you didn't like that. And you think that that could be better and here's a way it could be better. But speaking the truth in love, uh, which is actually a quotation from scripture is so important. And the two, again, the two can coexist. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. I know that's not exactly what you were asking, but it did remind me of, hey, you can be honest, but you don't have to be mean about it. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and that's so important um, for uh, our relationship to other people. Um, but I fully agree with you. The goal is not some kind of nirvana of the mind, nirvana of the heart, where we are just, um, or, or, or some kind of ethereal Christ-like goal, objective of almost emotionless, almost kind of like a neutered, <laughs> emotion emotion um that's not the goal i think to be fully alive is to acknowledge the full panoply of who we are 
uh, as created beings um, with the full texture of emotions, uh, the cross stitch of emotions. Um, it's beautiful. And God's planted that in our hearts. And we, um, we're, I think we are fully activated when we give full uh, acknowledgement to those things um, as we live in community. I, I, that's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I, I like this idea of also speaking truth with love. I mean, yeah. th- this is like one of the uh, things that people don't know how to do because no. we, we live in this world where it's like, you're wrong and I'm going to, I'm going to blow your mind with some truth right now. And I'm going to be <laughs> extremely disrespectful as I do it. People are going to be clapping behind me and, and yeah. this, this whole orchestra of people supporting me and my truth. And you're going to be defeated and your head is going to go down in shame. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's like, it doesn't have to be that black and white. And I like what you said, because let's just say that you were giving that, that sermon and the guy just stood up in the middle of you giving that sermon and said, you suck. I hate this. This is boring. You're, you're way off whack. It's like, that's perhaps truth that's not grounded in love because he's trying right. to tear you down. He's trying to humiliate you and he's trying to get an audience for his ideas. Whereas yeah. in, you know, thinking about it, like I like, I, I like Sam. I like the things that he said, you know, I, I like him as a person. I disagree with what he's saying right now. Let me find that magical moment. Maybe it's not even today. Maybe it's three days later. I come to the church on my own and, and have a conversation with him. Yeah. That's truth out of love yeah, where, where, right. where you know you're talking to that person and the stakes aren't as high. Exactly. Exactly. I moved back to small town Iowa right after my 28th birthday. Um, and I could not have done the work of small town ministry. You know, small town communities are great. There's a sense of community and camaraderie. And, you know, like they say about Iowa, we'll give you our shirt off our back and a back to go with it. If your crops should happen to die, that's from the music man. So there's this <laughs> sense of like, we will do anything for you. We'll shovel your walks when it snows. We'll uh, mow your lawn when uh, you need that. We'll bring a casserole by and all that stuff. Well, I'm leaving um, New York now. Goodbye, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it really is awesome. You know, and so there's a May, there is a Mayberry, you know, uh, quality to the small town. But there's also a dark side. People are very catty and cagey and mm. gossipy and won't talk to each other for years and years and years because one little thing happened. And going, stepping into that as a young, young person who looked and looks extremely young um, was really challenging and intimidating. And I don't think I could have done it if I hadn't done some hard internal work myself before I went there. Um, You know, some jackhammering of the soul and some laying of some fresh concrete. And uh, I needed to do that. And you know, I grew up in small town Iowa where there was stigma about therapy and counseling and getting professional help for emotional stuff because only people who are really, really messed up did that. It's kind of like exercise. You know, you only exercise if you're o- overweight. That was the, the, the thought back in the early 90s, you know. And it's completely town. the opposite. It's the people <laughs> yeah. who exercise every day that are less likely to be overweight, you know? <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. It's totally changed. <laughs> but the therapy thing, definitely there's stigma. And But I could not have done what I did. You know, there's an old saying, Puritan New England, that it was the smartest, the pastor or the parson uh, was the smartest person in town. You know, he was the one that had gone to school the most and had the most books, the biggest library who is the best read and all these things. And I think there's some truth to that still, but I think what's more important for ministry, but it's not just ministry, it's any kind of institution or organizational leadership is the person who is in, in, in leadership needs to be the most emotionally intelligent. And uh, that's what really matters. Uh, I, I think, I think that's some, the most important thing. And you only get that through hard internal work. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think it applies, it definitely applies in the church or any religious institution, but also in in the corporate sector as well. Because what's the point in having a a priest or a pastor that is well-versed in scripture and knows it like the back of their mind, but they don't know how to apply that to the people they're speaking to? it's, it's, It's kind of like, you're just an encyclopedia at this point. Yeah, you are. And, and, why, why is that, especially now in the age where we can just look stuff up on our phone? Because I right. could see maybe, maybe in the Middle Ages, 
it was really useful to have encyclopedia priests who could just be like, oh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, Ezekiel, sorry, my, 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 my scripture is so bad, but, um, you know, like, like ha having, having the uh, encyclopedia priest was probably useful back then. Yeah. Now that we can kind of look stuff up on our phones instantaneously, you really want the emotionally intelligent person, not just the overly specialized expert. Totally. Yeah. And it's not totally agree. And it's not just about applying the truths of scripture or, uh, you know, the universe to a given congregation or community. It's also, and I think almost foremost about uh, being able to hold a safe and secure space yourself. You know, you asked me about how to regulate your emotions and think logically. And I think it's another way of, of saying that about how do you regulate your emotions and think logically is to grow in your own emotional intelligence. And I think through that, you're able to hold a space for yourself and for others that's non-anxious. Uh, it's calm, it's composed, um, it's, it's rich, it's resourced, it's strong. Um, it doesn't succumb to the local politics of a church community or a mm. you know, synagogue community or a uh, small town community. It's able to just hold a space. And uh, the only way you can really do that is by doing work on yourself. And the secret is that there is some loud and cacophonous initial work that has to be done when you enter therapy or, or counseling, even if you don't think you need it. But then there's the realization that you, uh, you will have to always be a work in progress, even as a, even as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny you mention this because in in Buddhism, for example, if you're a Buddhist monk, you are prohibited from engaging in politics whatsoever. It's actually against the religion. So that if you're if you're a religious figure, you yeah. cannot enter politics at all because just by virtue of entering politics, it's believed to corrupt the soul. Even if you have perfectly, you know, sane and logical political stances, once you enter that realm, you now have stake in the game in some direction. And now that's all of a sudden that, that you cannot be a, a pure soul and be engaged in politics in any such way. To totally. I have uh, my Catholic farmer friend from Benton County, Iowa, which is Eastern Iowa. He always said to me that, you know, the most important degree for work in the local church is a degree in political science, you know, because, <laughs> and it's not necessarily that you're going to be on the city council or, or, or doing local politics, but just the politics of a given church, you know, who, who, who the influencers are and kind of who holds the weight. And uh, I ran up against a lot of that stuff and it was threatening, you know, like there was a, uh, a man on the, the session or the consistory, which is basically the church board, the church council. And they, uh, this man had been there for years and years and years and years and his father before him. And he was, uh, you know, the age of my dad, you know, right. um, and I'm kind of his boss, but he's kind of my boss. And, and, uh, and, and he's the person that everyone would go to, you know, if they needed to um, even down to change a light bulb in their house or, or, or whatever that he was like the honorary son of the older generation, you know, and, and kind of the honorary, uh, if you will, president of the congregation without even that being a, 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 an official title. He was just this guy that had so much influence and, you know, we butted heads. It was like, he wanted control of the congregation and, and, and I did, but not really. Cause I don't really care about that kind of stuff. I, right. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a millennial. We have different priorities, <laughs> you know? Um, but it was, it was a cause of contention. And I don't think that I would have been able to navigate those political waters uh, with a sense of calmness. And, and I think a firmness of identity, that's where it comes down to. It's like, I never lost sight of who I was. Now there right. were moments where I doubted it and despaired and had dark nights of the soul, but I never lost a sense of who I was. And I think that's the ultimate goal of this process of emotional intelligence is kind of knowing who we are in the deepest sense of who we are and, and nothing ultimately shakes that. The thing I'm also thinking about here is I'm sure you've heard the phrase uh, politics is the art of compromise, right? Yeah. Totally. And we always think of compromise as being a positive thing. Like, Oh, I, I'm trading up something. But I think that when you're in service in, in this kind of capacity, 
you don't want to compromise core principles and core mm -hmm. ideals about yourself in order to look better in front of the community. I think as a priest or as a, a leader, you have to actually deal with the fact that, oh, all of these people kind of hate me right now, but that's okay because I'm so confident in myself or I'm subscribing to these higher principles that yeah. I, can, I can take the rocks. Like it's my job to take the rocks, not, not to just be around to take the flowers. Totally. Yeah. I, I really think that the only way you're able to do that in any role of leadership or influence, um, or, or, or not even leadership or influence, just wherever you are, is to do, uh, to do hard internal work on yourself. Um, and, yeah. I, and, it, and, and I know it sounds like I keep coming back to that, but I think that I, I cannot imagine stepping into three years of ministry in that community as a pastor, you know, with, and everyone was older than me, you know, sure. um, I could not have done that if I had not sort of, uh, submitted myself to, you know, about a year and a half to two years of professional counseling beforehand, uh, professional therapy and, uh, some education in this area. Um, and, and uh, by no means am I sort of a certified counselor or therapist or anything like that. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of an armchair, <laughs> armchair person on, on that stuff, you know, but I could not have done that if I hadn't done that job of leading that congregation, if I hadn't preceded it with some, some really hard work. And I, I don't use that phrase lightly. It is hard and uncomfortable work to, to know your story. And that's, you know, I, I mentioned earlier the role of emotions and, and how we have to constantly do the work of understanding and identifying what we feel um, and naming what we feel right but we also need to keep in mind the sort of the bigger picture of our of our life story and and to know it and to focus on um, the core memories of our past and the core stories and these two things are interconnected because we will know the more we know about ourselves the more we'll know why that person's comment stung so much, you know, right, it, hurt, yes. it hurt us so much because, you know, this thing, because we know ourselves and we know what makes us tick and what, why we value what we value because we've done some reconstruction, reconstructive work on our story. And we can look back and, and know with more of a sense of coherence, who we are and where we came from. And, and um, a lot of that has to do with core stories and core memories that happen when we're young and those things stick with us and shape us and lead us to feel certain ways under certain circumstances. I mean, part of the reason that that guy felt so threatening to me, that guy that I mentioned just a few minutes ago about, you know, him being kind of the honorary son of a congregation was, you know, because I think in some ways he triggered kind of a feeling that I have uh, with, you know, my dad and my uncles hmm. who are all very um, religious people and um, can be a little uh, kind of know-it-all when it comes to religion stuff and organizational things. And I felt like a kind of like a, like a, like a boy again, you know, like I was sort of being uh, talked down to, you know, I remember on one occasion he said to me, you're just so young. We've got to teach you how to do this job. You know what wow, I mean? Wow. Right. And, and it's like you had gone to school and, and trained for all this. And yeah, exactly. And, and, and the thing about it, Sam, is that had you not done that really incredibly hard work of knowing exactly who Sam was, yeah. you might actually just be muscled along and go with what he's saying. And totally. it, it's not, it's not that he's necessarily saying anything that's like really that bad or that wrong. It's just that if you don't have a firm anchor of who you are, then yeah. that allows the, the, the tide to kind of take you wherever it wants to. And it you might, the tide might take you on a beautiful path, but it could also very well take you down a path that's counter to who you actually are. It does. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think if I hadn't done some of that work before I met this guy, uh, I, I would have been more reactive towards him. You know, it would have been more, there's a Presbyterian phrase, uh, when you're being examined for doctrine, doctrinal purity, or uh, <laughs> to, to say, yeah, I actually disagree with that particular doctrine or teaching of the church, right? You know, of, of scripture you say, okay, is this, 
uh, merely semantic or does it strike at the vitals of religion? Huh. And I think, I think that distinction is helpful because it's like, ultimately, I had, a, I had a deeper sense of who I was. Even if I was scared and sad some nights when I went back to the parsonage where I lived because I, I came from a meeting with this guy and it was discouraging or you know, kind of humiliating or whatever, I still could come back to this rock of identity you know, mm. for me as a Christian, that has something to do with God, obviously, but it's not only, you know, it's God and, and, and who God has made me to be and things like that. But I had this rock of identity that I could climb back onto. And I think that I would have been reactive towards him if I had felt more threatened kind of at the core, if it had struck more at the vitals of who I was. But it was just semantic at that point because I had already sort of crossed the threshold of emotional intelligence where it was like, all right, I, I know this guy is, is difficult and he's making life hard for me, but it's not um, what he's saying and who he is. Ultimately, uh, it cannot... Uh, it, it cannot, it's the, the rains and the storm of who he is cannot wash away the, the rock on which I stand. I like that. Uh, yes. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that it allows you to deal with consequences a, a lot better because I feel like, you know, when you stand up to authority figures like that, and I've, I've actually done this quite a bit as, as being a teacher, there are consequences. Like you yes. will, you will yes. face, you will face the wrath but what I like about this is that when you have a strong sense of self-identity, you can yes. get fired or you could face the consequences yes. and you still come out okay. You still say yes. to yourself, okay, I have less material possessions. I have a smaller yes. paycheck now and all these other nasty things, but I'm still Aaron. You're still Sam. And that's yeah. like the most important thing that we still yeah. leave with our, our dignity and our self-identity intact. I think that far outweighs any of the material comforts that a, a job gives you. Yeah. And I, I just urge, uh, you know, people to, to acknowledge that in each other, you know, no human can confer core dignity upon another human, you know, only, you know, ultimate, ultimately only, you know, God, or if you will, the universe can, can do that, you know, like, I can't confer to you your sort of inherent dignity as a person, as a unique person, who you are and your uniqueness. I can't, I don't have the authority as a, as a human being to do that. I don't have the creative power to do that. Right. But I can call it out of you. I can see it and acknowledge it and encourage it and rejoice over it, help you be more firmly rooted and planted in, in, in who you are. And again, from a Christian perspective, who God made you to be, right? And, and help you discover that. That's all we can do. We're, we're just like, we're, we're spirit, all we are to each other is like a spiritual and, a, and an emotional midwife. You know, <laughs> we, didn't, we, did, we, didn't, we didn't create the baby and the, and the baby's gonna come out. <laughs> um, one way or another, right? Like, but, but we can help it along. We can yeah. help it along and guide it and just be there for each other. And I think that's the greatest gift we can. And I think one way of referring to that is just love, you know, we can cel celebrate each other. And, um, but also sometimes we have to have words of confrontation for each other and challenge definitely and i want to actually move the conversation along a little bit back to the uh the, the sphere of emotional intelligence yeah so if we're thinking about confrontation i'm going to give you uh, a, a, an example uh, of something that happened i was uh working out at this gym and um for a while and i found out that they were cheating me i found out that people who had been members for way less time than me uh, we're paying a lot less and I was paying a lot more. And mm. I, I couldn't just be timid in this moment. Like just being oh. timid in this moment was not going to get me the price that I wanted to. And I, I have to give my, uh, my mom and my girlfriend a lot of credit here. They kind of pushed me when they, when they found out how much I was paying, they were like, you got to stand up for yourself. And, and yeah, like yeah, much, yeah. much love and kudos to them for doing that. But yeah, I, I realized that like, there are these, these moments in our life where you do have to be really assertive at times and you do yeah. have to kind of toughen up and be like, no, um, I am paying this amount and everyone else is paying that amount. And I'm wondering if you can kind of 
walk me through this process because we, we want to regulate our emotions. Uh, yeah. But when we think about regulating our emotions, we always think of it as being this stoic that just puts up with everything and, and just becomes a, a carpet that people walk on. And that's the ultimate form of stoicism where people just walk all over you and you, you're eating it up inside, but you react in a way that's like, ah, totally understood. I got you. Right. So, so how, how do we know when it's okay to kind of unleash a little rage into the situation? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, first of all, and I think this is always important to say as a friend is just, I'm sorry that that happened. Um, that must have really sucked and um, not giving you a great feeling to be taken advantage of in that situation. But I, to answer your question, I think that uh, there is a place for rage. There is a place for confrontation. I, I have a hard time advocating for myself. Right. Um, I don't like that part of myself. I feel shame about that. I, I'm just eager to please and get along with people and keep everything on an even keel. Um, I, that's kind of my mode of reckoning with my emotions that I have operated out of since I was a child, honestly. And that goes back to family stuff. And I still operate that way. You know, I have a hard time advocating for myself in the workplace and with friends. I feel, um, I fear uh, being taken advantage of in a variety of ways, whether that's with money or with stuff or with space or, uh, you know, as a roommate or something like that. Um, I feel f uh, fear of, of being taken advantage of, but also just being kind of talked over, kind of trampled upon in yeah. various ways, kind of missed. Um, taken for granted. And uh, I, I, I don't like that part of myself. I wish I was more, more bold and more, you know, I sometimes see really like confrontational people. And I'm like, I wish I had a little bit of that. Yes. Um, at the same time, um, I'm learning to sort of like, I, I can't underscore how important it is to to say that this the scaffolding is always up on our lives you know where we are the orange cones are always out the yellow tape is always <laughs> out we are we are always learning and growing and i yeah. hope that i continue to learn and some of these things that we're talking about are decades long processes sure um and so you know you and i are just about the same age um and so we can probably relate on some of these things but i i'm i know that i'm still Right now, to this very day, right now, learning and growing in this very area of discernment. It, it is a question of discernment, knowing, you know, people say pick your battles and stuff like that. And I think there's truth to that. You have to pick your battles. Everyone does. And if you yes. don't, if you don't, you will become the village idiot. You will become the outcast, the pariah. You will. You will in any setting. Do you think that this comes down to maybe like a misinterpretation of the quote and and again my my scripture is so bad but the, this idea of turning the other cheek do you think that do you think we've yeah. kind of run a little too far with that in the sense that totally. ah that person uh, allows all of these negative nasty people to take advantage but they're they're more christ-like in their behavior or in their actions and therefore they'll get a, a better reward at the end of this or that they're a better human being I think there's that 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 trap that you can fall into if you kind of take that phrase a little too far. Oh my gosh, yes, yes, yes. I have been, I'm going to say oppressed a little bit by <laughs> a sense throughout my life of uh, oppressed by a sense of Christian duty, Christian responsibility. And this Christian responsibility is, as you said, in the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, um, if someone strikes you on the, you know, one cheek, turn to him the other also. Um, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles and so on and so forth, Matthew chapter five. And, and I think that um, that is skewed um, in a lot of Christian people's understanding and minds uh, that is misrepresented. Um, I think that there is a time to bow out, for example. Um, there is a time to leave uh, a certain circumstance or environment because it's toxic. Um, it is not always, you know, and I think about abusive relationships, you know, this is something I don't know a lot about. But like if a wife is being, uh, you know, um, abused by her husband yes. know, or any kind of domestic abuse, right? Uh, there has been an opinion over the years, over the ages that, you know, the wife 
you know, sticks it out because, you know, there's a, another quote in scripture where it says, you know, the believing wife sanctifies the unbelieving husband, you know? And so if she just stays there, you know, change will come. And, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's something good just around the next corner. You know what I mean? And that, those things are so, so, uh, deceptive and slippery. And I think that those are bad interpretations of scripture. I think that those are, um, slippery slopes. I think that those are uh, a delusion, um, those, those kind of ideas. Um, I, is there a call for Christian duty sometimes? Yes. Mm. Um, but I think uh, part of growing in emotional intelligence and spiritual maturity is knowing how to pick your battles and knowing when to uh, press in and when to pull out and, um, and, and how to do that. And uh, I think the thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, um, you know, I'm actually uh, taking a break from ministry right now, um, and I'm 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 back in the restaurant industry, which is <laughs> which which is fun, and it's it's a totally different environment. Um, and I've been uh, caught off guard by some people that I work with, just how um, maybe kind of how how rude they've been uh, sure. at times. And I'm the kind of guy that just sort of takes it, like my mm. like I said at the beginning, takes a licking, keeps on ticking, you know. And doesn't, but I'm not always good about advocating for myself. And, and I think one thing I can do even right now in my new work environment, you know, is just to say, hey, you know, when you talk to me that way, it comes across as really rude and really disrespectful. And um, I, I, I would appreciate it if you would just, um, you know, not do that and speak to me. If you have a problem with something that I'm doing, you know, speak to me in a more respectful way. Um, and that's, that's truth out of love because, because, because you're not, you're not calling them out in front of everybody and creating no. drama or scene. Like you're, you know, you're taking some, a pause and being like, okay, that's highly disrespectful. And maybe you're not yeah. calling them out in the moment, but then right. you're going to wait until like the end of work, or you're going to wait until the time is just right. And be like, exactly. you know, a few hours ago, the way you spoke to me, was just really yeah. rude. And, and like, that's truth out of love. Like I'm defending myself. I'm advocating, but I'm not making this a, a Roman like gladiator spectacle here. No, exactly. And I can make that request because, um, because that's what I need, you know, and that's what I did. I want to even say that's what I deserve, although, you know, the language of merit has been kind of corrupted by some people. But I think that I'll say, I'll put it this way. I am worthy of, of a, a more respectful tone and not because I did some heroic act for you or because um, I'm the greatest person that's ever lived or uh, any reason except my inherent human dignity. You know, I, that is my human right uh, in this setting to be treated with more respect. And when you speak in that aggressive way, it's, it, it's undignifying to me. Yes. Um, it, strips, it strips me of some measure of dignity. And that is wrong. That is, a, I mean, obviously that's not an injustice like genocide or something like that, but that is a small a form of injustice. Um, not be, again, not because of, but because I'm special in a weird way, but I'm special because I'm human and because I'm your coworker and like, I, I deserve to be treated better in this situation. Now I want to turn, turning back to the, the issue of let's say rage. Okay. And let's say you have that very lovey kind of like, Hey, I deserve better. And then the person keeps on disrespecting you again yeah. and again and again and again. I'm wondering if it's ever like after the 10th time or the 20th time, I don't know what the right number is. Is there ever a point where then you kind of have to make a public spectacle and then sort of get a little bit more aggressive in your tone or just take it to that next level? And then I, I think what also helps in this situation is that everybody knows who you work with. Sam is a really nice, super reasonable guy. And you've already, you've already established that reputation right. that Sam is super reasonable, super cool. And then if you lose your cool with one particular person, then everyone's kind of got your back in a way because they're like, whoa, if this guy pissed off Sam, he must have done something really, really bad. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Dude, thank you for the benefit of the doubt. Um, I think that, you know, there's so many, uh, there's several examples in, in scripture of uh, what people call righteous anger. You know, um, mm. Moses kind of 
losing his yes, you know what smashing the ten commandments right exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's exactly what i was thinking of um and then you know another another famous one is uh jesus going into the temple and driving out all the money changers and the people that are selling stuff because you know they've corrupted the temple of god they've turned this house of prayer into a, a den of robbers you know and so People refer to those passages and say, okay, there's a place for righteous, people call it righteous anger. And then, yes. and then, but then I see, again, I'm, I'm in the deep in the Christian community. So that's my exposure, right? But I see Christian people, evangelical Christian people abusing those ideas. And they say, oh yeah, my, you know, they warrant their response of, which was honestly just disrespectful and angry and undistasteful in every possible way. But they they uh they warrant it because okay that was righteous anger um again that's just an abuse of scripture that's that's a misquoting yeah um one so thing there's... one thing i want to say also is that um with with the story with jesus uh, getting the money changers out of the, out of the temple right. and moses smashing the 10 commandments right i think that when they were upset or, or angry in that moment I don't think that they hurled out insults at the Israelites. Like no, I don't think no, no, I don't no. I don't think Moses was like, you no. know, you people are blah blah blah. He just was just so angry in that moment, and that yeah. him breaking the Ten Commandments commandments was just he was bringing attention. Like, hey, you guys have done something very wrong here. You can see that yeah. I'm upset. I'm not going to call you a hurl of insults or any of this other no, stuff. No, no. It's just a question of like if I just smile while you're praying to this golden calf or whatever, then I'm yeah. not doing my duty by sending a message that God no. is really upset at you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, that would be a failure of leadership on his part, you know, and, it, but I do want to go back to what you said about the workplace. Let's say, you know, uh, you know, Sam's a great guy. He's great to work with. And we're, we've been able to see that. And so if he's angry, you know, you, you know, you really, you really did something. You know? <laughs> and I, I like that because um, it, it, well, cause it just makes me think of several things, but, but the one I want to say right now is I'm trying to reject the, the notion of uh, uplift suasion. It's a, it's a phrase that I actually learned from. Um, I've never Ibra heard of it. What, what does yeah, it mean? Uh, uh, uplift suasion. So I learned it. I just recently learned it from a guy named Ibram X. Kendi, who's a African-American scholar uh, who wrote, um, how to be anti-racist. Um, he wrote uh, a book about, um, what was the other one? Uh, Stamped from the Beginning, which is basically just a, a history of African-Americans and how, uh, and racist ideas that, that have been hurled at them basically. Um, and, and so there was this idea, and I know I'm kind of going around about here a little bit, but I hopefully, hopefully I'll bring it back. The uplift suasion idea was this idea among, common among African-Americans and white people throughout you know, American history, that if black people are just good enough or just prove themselves enough, commend, commend themselves enough through achievement, through good character, good whatever, mm. that they will, they will kind of earn the respect of white people and white society. Um, and so there was this idea of like the talented 10th, which was like the talented 10% of black people. We can kind of tolerate them, but everyone right. else we can't tolerate because those 10 have successfully uh, commended themselves to white society. And, and Ibram X. Kendi, this uh, race scholar, basically, he says, um, we've got to continue every generation to reject this idea uh, of uplift suasion. You can never do enough to commend. And I think that's true emotionally too, in any workplace, in any environment, any family, and any organization, institution. You shouldn't have to do a certain number of things or say a certain quota of respectful words to someone in order for them to respect you and to respond positively to you. You just, that is just the baseline of dignity is that they treat you with respect. If they have an issue, they, um, they can call you out on it, but they don't, they do it in the right way. And, and I, I've, tr I think I've taken the uplift suasion approach with a lot of my relationships, even right now at working in the restaurant, it's like, you know, I'm trying to be this amazingly good guy so that, so kind of what, I mean, kind of facetiously, but kind of so what you said would come to pass. So it's like, if I really have an issue, then they know that it's really an issue. But I think the better tack is just to um, call people and, and in a sense, demand people to a base, at least a base level of dignity and respect all the time. And, and to just rely on saying, here's what I need. 
here's what I want. And for me to get any less, I don't think this is an unreasonable expectation for me to get any less is, is it's not right. And I have the right then to leave or take further action. Um, but I might, I, I know, I might yeah, push back a little bit here because I, I think though that I have to know to myself that I crossed all my T's. You know what I mean? Yeah, so like, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. like before I go into that situation, I have to ask myself a thousand times, did I do everything possible to, yes. to handle this? Or did I do everything possible to handle myself in the highest manner possible? So, because I don't want to necessarily, like if I'm coming in late to work every day and mm-hmm. I have attitude right. and stuff like that, and I'm like, you, you respect me, I demand it. But then yeah. I'm, I'm kind of letting it all hang out and yeah. I'm not living up to my end of the bargain, then people are going to think, well, well, that guy's a nut. He thinks he's entitled to all of this and that, but he does nothing for us. And he, he comes here every single day and demands that we all bow down to him, but he's <laughs> disrespectful. He's, he doesn't treat us right. So I, I say to myself, like, and, and this is completely arbitrary, but I yeah. say I have to put enough goodness into that environment yeah. That, that I can, and, and this is up to me, I have to be able to look myself in the mirror and say, okay, I've put enough tolerance, goodness, happiness, joy, discipline, whatever it is, into this environment. I'm still getting disrespected. Now I can kind of unleash the rage. But until I hit all those check marks, I feel guilty unleashing the rage. <clears throat> totally. I totally agree with you. And I'm the same way. I want to make sure all my I's are dotted and my T's are crossed. And, and it's the idea of social capital. Like I want to have something to draw on with these people. Um, as far as rage goes, you kind of asked me, when do you ratchet it up? You know, yeah. when do you go to the next level? And my experience, again, my short life, I'm going to put, up, put that <laughs> the disclaimer out there. Um, from my, from the experience of my short life, I would say that public rage really never pays off. Mm. Um, it may pay off in some ways and sometimes you can't control it. Sometimes it just pops out and you have to sort of uh, oh my gosh, what just happened? Step back, go take five and then, and then enter uh, back into the, to the arena there. But I think that, um, as a plan, uh, publicly calling someone out or confronting someone, it never, and, and being harsh with someone, even with kind of an enemy mm. it never really pays. I think that there's always more options than meets the eye. And I just don't think anybody wants to be publicly shamed. Um, so I would discourage that. And I would say instead, you know, over time, if issues persist and, you know, actions not taken and, and problems are not addressed, um, you know, one option is, is ultimately to leave. And, um, you know, maybe that's not an option. Um, but I think it's just the acknowledgement that sometimes uh, environments become or have been toxic for too long. Yeah. And you, ha- you, have, you have to leave. Um, so I think that's something that we can always acknowledge. It's easy for me to say that. I mean, there's some people who are really genuinely stuck in their situations and I don't know what to say to them off the top of my head. I would be willing to work with them, but that's a, that's, I will, I will say this. I, I think once you're at the verge of rage or you do have a, um, a, a very explosive outburst, then yeah. that should be immediately followed up with removing yourself from that situation for as long as humanly possible. And I, I think, totally. I think, I think that, 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 that like explosion is a signifier of, okay, it doesn't mean I don't love this person anymore. Or it doesn't mean that we'll never talk again, but like, like their, their rage might jolt them a little bit. And if you have rage followed by seclusion and separation, that actually might lead to reflection because, okay, this person, like, cause there's also this idea of ghosting where we just fade away from people we don't like, right. but then they never learn anything because if you just right. fade away from somebody yeah. you don't like, then they're like, well, why is this person avoiding me? They don't like me. Whereas if you have the, um, I, I had this like little episode about running into volcanoes. It's like, if you have this giant explosion and then yeah. you fade away, they at least are, they at least know, okay, he was really upset to me about that time at the restaurant. And now you've given them the material to reflect on instead of just 
like becoming a ghost and just totally i i totally agree with that and i it, you just listening to you now reminds me how much i i still have to learn in this issue this area because confrontation doesn't come easy to me i always want things to be on an even keel um but i have gotten better about advocating for myself and and other people too you know if there's an issue um, I am more willing than I was 10 years ago, for sure, probably even more than more uh, than five years ago. And, you know, I'm growing um, to, to call someone out and and to more going back to your phrase, kind of think logically about it and to say um, even to plan my words and to say, all right, I've chosen that this issue is something that I'm really going to this cause is one that I'm really going to take up. And I'm going to yes. say the hill you're hey, going to die on. <laughs> yeah, to totally, totally. And, and, but then there's been other situations where I wish that I had said more. However, I have to trust myself, you know, in that moment, I, um, I didn't feel like I had an opportunity. It wasn't that I didn't care. And it wasn't that I wasn't hurt by uh, a particular environment or set of actions. Um, but I, I didn't speak up in the same way. Um, and not to, and and to catch myself because immediately I feel shame and then I'm like man I'm such a weak weakling I'm <laughs> such a I'm such a wuss I'm such yeah. a doormat and to just be just to be patient with yourself and great to extend grace to yourself like you would someone else um, I think that's important too I think the way to kind of end this off is this idea like let's say let's go back to our child right that doesn't want to go to grandma's house I think the right thing for that child to do is figure out a way to cope with the fact that they're going to a place that doesn't make them happy, but at the same time, respect grandma. And then it's up to that child to develop the emotional intelligence of being like, mom, dad, we spent this week at grandma's next week. Can I go to Andrew's house yeah. <laughs> and figure, yeah. figuring out that right balance of like, I'm standing up for myself, but at the same time, I, I'm not like being hyper aggressive. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, man. This is great. Thanks so much. This concludes the 24th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.